The following presentation is from North Pine Baptist Church. We trust that it will help you learn more about God and His message for the world. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace, every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Some said, What does this fabulous betray? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinity, but he is preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there could spend their time in nothing except selling or doing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Wherever I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined a lot of period and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from the planet. For in him we live and move as our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
Now, when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, Who of you will be resurrected? So Paul went out from the midst, but so many joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Studies at the University of Jerusalem, 
um, yes, he would have studied the Jewish religion, um, but he also would have studied the Greek philosophy. And it's obvious that he knew these Greek philosophers because in the passage today we see that he actually quotes them. And so, um, so he would have known that the writings and the, the teachings and the philosophy of these these Greeks, these famous Greeks, would have come in some of the passages. And um, on his missionary journey, he, he had been kicked out of Thessalonica, then he was kicked out of Berea, and uh, they had to whisk him away, and they escorted him, which is what Peter made the verses before our passage today, um, these friends of his in Berea escorted him down to Athens. And I imagine that, um, I'm guessing, that he would have spent a couple of days just being a tourist. He would have been travelling around, looking at these wonders of the world, checking out the Parthenon, the Temple of Athena, and all those famous buildings that were there in the Acropolis. And uh, he would have just been taking it all in and just enjoying himself. But of course, Paul was Paul. He was a compulsive evangelist. And, uh, and so, what did he do then? Well, he does what Paul does. And uh, seeing these sights and soaking in the culture and, and embracing all that he's doing around about him started to affect his heart. And uh, so what did he see and uh, how did it affect him? Well, look at uh, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly disturbed to see that the city was full of idols. This is a thing that really struck me, and it really distressed me. Everywhere he looked there at Athens, he was seeing another shrine, or another temple, or another idol, or another statue. And these icons were constant reminders to him that the people were worshipping the gods of Olympus. Jupiter, Venus, Zeus, Bacchus, Diana, and more and more and more. And but they were kind of enshrined in gold and silver and bronze and ivory and marble and stone by these statues that were all around the city of Athens. It was an extremely serious thing. And yet Paul, as he looks at these things all around about him, his moves in his heart, in fact, he's even revolts by what he was seeing because the whole city is given over to idolatry. Isaiah 42 verse 8, we read this, this is God speaking, I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. I'm not going to give my glory to idols. I am the Lord. Paul, as he's seeing these things, is saying, these people are giving their glory to other gods. The glory that should have been given exclusively to the God that he loves and believes in and is serving is being given over to these idols of Athens. Let's stop and think for a moment. As we look around about us today, as we see the idols of the people of our culture are worshipping, does it affect us? Are we revolted by what we are seeing? You know, it's right for us to have this holy jealousy for the glory of God. We want people to be worshipping Jesus Christ and only Jesus. And yet, as we look around us today, more and more and more, we see busy people who are bowing down. They're not bowing down to the idols made of gold and silver and bronze and ivory and, and marble and those sorts of things. But they are worshipping it nonetheless. So Paul was affected that day as he looked around Athens. Well, what did he do about it? Let's read verses 17 and 18. So he reasoned 
in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Jews, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there. A group of Epicureans and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this God they're trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. What did Paul do? He started preaching the gospel with anybody who would listen. First of all, and this was typical of Paul when he went to a new town and new city, he would go first of all to the local synagogue. And there he would find fellow Jews and God fearing Jews. And, uh, and so he would take the opportunity that he got in the synagogue to tell them about Jesus. Good news are looking for Messiah. Well, the Messiah has come. The Messiah is Jesus Christ. And of course, some Jews uh, reacted very badly. They called it talking about Jesus and the resurrection. Uh, others, a little bit more irresolutely, but they kicked him out of the synagogue. It didn't matter because his business sort of deal with it was the local marketplace, and that's what happened here. He went to the synagogue, but then during the week he would go to the marketplace there. And he would talk to the Gentiles. It would be like us today, going to maybe King George Street or whatever, Spring Street Mall or something like that, to talk about Jesus. I've got a, uh, a sister and brother-in-law who go into the local shopping centre, and they've got arrangements with uh, there's two shopping centres on the south side of the road, Standing Hill on the other one up the hill. And a couple of days a week, they go and they set up the signs, the chaplaincy signs, they're all done with the permission of the, of the, uh, the local um, centre management. And, um, and they'll spend a couple of hours there and just invite people who want to come and talk to them. And if they've got problems, they try to help them, they pray with them, and uh, it's a flourishing ministry. It's been going for a couple of years now. And they're starting to co-op other people. You see, there's no need for the marketplace of the church to share the gospel of Christ. Um, three years ago, um, I, I, I had a trip over to, um, to England. Um, my, my daughter, my only daughter, I had five sons and one daughter, and Becky was over there working uh, in street ministry at Brighton in England for a couple of years. And so I took the opportunity to go over there and, uh, and visit her. And uh, we spent a couple of days in London, checking out London. And um, while we were there, we went to um, to Hyde Park, the stupid corner. Anyone been to stupid corners in uh, Europe? There's a few people have been there. You know where it is? Where it is near Marble Arch. And um, the day that we were there, it was actually drizzling with rain, so it wasn't the best. But um, but anyway, there was a um, there was a, a Muslim Imam there with his caftan and his skull cap on. He was standing on still, and he was he was speaking away there, and there was a group of people trying to gather around him. Uh, and while we were there, um, this American brother came up. He was a, a typical uh, Southern American with his drawl, and he had a cowboy hat on, and he had a very colourful shirt with Bible verses all over it, and he had a pair of jeans with Bible verses down the sides of his jeans, obviously pretty Baptist too. And then he had a, had a ladder. And he, he brings his ladder along and he sets it all up and then climbs up about halfway up the ladder and he puts his Bible on the top of the ladder there. And, uh, and away he went. And so you had the, the Muslim Imam there and I kept telling him every day, the, the, uh, the American guy. And uh, there they were. The American guy was preaching away and uh, a group gathered around him. Some of them were, were arguing with him and some of them were, <coughs> were asking him questions were trying to react to what he was saying along the way. But I mean, um, I mean, I don't know exactly how it was with Paul in the marketplace where it happened, but no doubt he was in the most... Um, you know, Paul being Paul, you know, um, he was very persuasive kind of way. He would have been trying to convince anybody who was prepared to listen to him um, as he talked about, about Jesus and the resurrection. Um, there were two particular groups that are mentioned here in uh, verse 18. 
that uh, were interested in what Paul was saying. Uh, one was a group called the Epicureans, and the other were the different schools. Now, the Epicureans believed that life was all a matter of chance. There's nothing after death. This life is all there is. And so, their view was that you had to chase after pleasure as much as you possibly could in life and avoid pain at all costs. Alright, so the philosophy of life by which the Epicureans lived is eat, drink, be merry, or tomorrow you may die. Alright, now I know that's a, a very selfish way for a person to live their life. But you can understand why people who are Epicureans live that way. And you know, as I was thinking about it, I thought, well, well, what's the philosophy of life that the average Australian would be like? Eat, drink, suck as much pleasure as you can out of life, because life is all over tomorrow. You've only got an opportunity now to make the most of it. So I, I think, you know, we have. A lot of empty feelings today, even if they don't know why they say that. What about the Stoics? Well, Stoics believe that everything was determined by fate. It's destiny. It's going to happen, it's going to happen. You just got to take the good with the bad in life. We can't really control our circumstances. But what we can do is we can control ourselves. Right? And so because of that, you know, Stoics tend to be fairly big on self-discipline, self-control, that sort of thing. And so what they say is, is, well, don't get too carried away in the good times, but then don't get too crushed by the bad times, because, you know, they'll try and balance themselves out in the second sort of way. Now, do we have people like that today? Uh, I think we do. Uh, I was thinking to myself, well, you know, which way would I turn? Well, I would probably I'll probably turn a little bit towards the Stoic side. Um, yeah, maybe that's more of my particular personality that I tend to have. <laughs> anyway, there's this people, a group of people standing around listening to Paul. And it must be a little might have gone on for several days. There are some people who sort of said, oh, he's just a baker. He's raving on. But there are other people who said, well, Praising to God, and he seems to be talking about well, particularly two kinds of guys. There's one called Jesus, and there's another one called Anastasis or the Resurrection. And um, anyway, there was enough interest in them for them to say, "Well, look, let's take Paul to the Areopagus and let him speak his philosophy or his religion to the uh, to the Areopagus." Now, the Areopagus. We need to understand it's like the Supreme Council that ruled over Athens. It was made up of philosophers and religious leaders and political leaders. And it was held up on the Acropolis. That's that very same hill that we saw photos of before. And so Paul was taken up to the Areopagus. Now, it'd be like to have been maybe ask to present your views to the, the professors at Temple University and they would have this assembly with all the professors there and all the, and all the sort of academic glories and this guy standing up in front of them. Uh, I mean, in actual fact, it was probably one of the greatest opportunities that Paul had in his whole life in ministry to be able to present the gospel. The Areopagus is this Supreme Council that ruled over, over Athens had the power to either shut him down or to open wonderful doors for him to be able to present this new God or this new religion that he had. Well, what was Paul's message to the Areopagus? Let's start reading verse 26. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. 
regular walk around and look for the truth of the world. I even found an old witness in Scripture to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am learning to proclaim to you. Verse 7. It is your blessing, Satan, and give unto more than you. Is your gift the real God? And then only give me to the Lord of God. But by the same token, it's not true. You know, I think there's one Bible, there's one statue there which is debatable, and I think it's debatable to a common name God. In other words, you know, all the hundreds of gods that you worship here in the city. You left open the possibility that you might have even just one. So I'm going to tell you about that one that you can. So it's going to be respectful. And it's not a wedding to the house in the place Well, let's look a little bit more closely now at the message that is really the What we have to understand is this message is this, that we have recorded for us in Acts 17 is like the two minute version. If I tried to speak, we would have had Is the God who is real, 
a God who is unlimited, a God who cannot be contained. You can't localize this God that I'm telling you about. Your God is so small by comparison to how big and wonderful this God is that I'm telling you about. Well, Paul then goes on to talk about this God's desire to have a personal relationship with us. Verses 27 to 29. God did this so that they would seek him, the people of all nations, that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he was not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. We are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Not only is Paul God, great and powerful, he's also personal. He wants us to know him. Yet, in a way, that reveals his character to the people of the world. It's not a, not a, not a, a distant or a remote God. He's a God who is personal. A God who is, has come and made himself known to us. And he wants us to belong to him. And he wants us to be part of his family. We are his offspring. He wants us to understand the fact that, that he created us, that we might live with him in this in this ongoing relationship as his offspring. And in recent times, there's been a lot of emphasis upon, um, upon what we call intelligent design. Uh, intelligent design basically is that, uh, that, that uh, as we look at the intricacy of nature, that we can see the fact that behind it all there is an intelligent design. And a lot of people, if they're not Christians, are coming to the conclusion that as they look at the intricacies of, of nature, particularly to science and things like that, molecular biology, those sorts of things, that, 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 that you, you, you can't say this just happened by accident. That, that there is evidence there that behind it all there is a creator an intelligent designer. Well, well, that's a good start because when Paul is moving these people from intelligent design of a creator to the fact that this intelligent designer wants to know us personally. God is more than just a great designer. He's, he's a loving father. And he wants us to know him as part of his family. He wants us to appreciate the fact that every little detail of our lives is under his control. Verse 28 says, In him we live and move and have our being. See, he is a personal God. The fact that, we, that, that, that we're here today, that we've got breath in our lungs, that we enjoy all the, the wonderful beauty and the privileges of life, blessings of life that God has given us. Thanks to us for taking that up. A wonderful God who cares for us personally. One of the famous Greek poets was a guy called Epimenides. And he was the guy who said, in him we live and move and have our being. He didn't realize what he was speaking of. He was probably referring to a Greek God. But Paul takes that quote and he applies it to the God of the Bible. knew how to talk down on these things. But he didn't want to just impress them with his knowledge. He wanted them to understand that there's a difference between the God that they were worshipping and this great God that he was telling them about. Well, Paul wasn't so finished at that. He then zeroes in on another aspect of, of God. In the past, God overlooked our ignorance, 
but can I just remind all people to be there to repent? For you instead of that, when you will judge the world with justice by the means you have appointed, you have given privileges to everyone by raising him from the dead. No doubt this is part of a, of a, 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 a bigger section of this message which would have focused upon Jesus. But um, although uh, Jesus' name is not specifically mentioned there, it's very clear who, who he's, what he's talking about. Obviously, if God had raised this man from the dead, he must have died. And that, of course, is a reference to Jesus and the message of the cross. The point that Paul was making here is very clear. If God is our Creator, well then He has the right to tell us how to live our lives. He's the one who sets the standard what is right and what is wrong, what is good, what is evil. He has authority over us. And one day we are all going to be accountable to Him for the way that we have lived our lives. And therefore, we are sinners. And that's why he calls us to repent. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has sent his son into the world to pay the penalty for our sin, to die in our place upon the cross. And now that I'm telling you about Jesus, you have no excuse. You must repent of your sin and turn to Him. For God has said a day when He's going to judge the world with justice by the man He's appointed. He's given proof to this man by raising Him from the dead. And one day, every single one of us, not just the philosophers of Athens back in those days, but every single one of us, is also going to have to stand before Jesus as our judge. Ignorance is not an excuse any longer. Well, what was the response? Look at verses 32 to 36. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear it again on the Sabbath. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a member of others. But some rejected Paul's message. Uh, I think it's the J.D. Phillips version where it says, if it translates, they burst out laughing. They mocked him, they sneered at him. But that, that was the reaction of some. Romans chapter 1 verse 11 tells us that there, that there, there are some people who believe that Jesus does the truth. They don't even want to know the truth about God. But then there are a, a second group and, um, and these people um, they, 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 they hesitated. They said, we want to hear you again on the subject. And sometimes people need a bit of time to consider the implications of the message. Jesus himself said, didn't he? He said, count the cost. Weigh it up. Think about it. But, but sooner or later, you have to make a decision. But then there was a third group of people, and these were some people who did believe, and they put their faith in God, whom this guy that Paul was talking about. One was a guy called Dionysius, and he was obviously one of the intellectuals of Athens. He was a, he was a fully-fledged member of the Areopagus. And, uh, and there's also a woman named Damaris, and there are several others as well, too. I, I think it's fair to say that, um, that, that whenever the gospel is clearly presented, there will be diff- a range of different responses and reactions to that message. Well, what does all this mean for us? 
the world that we're living in today is becoming more and more secular. And because of that, I think what we're doing is we're inverting that to becoming more and more pagan. One of the ways that things were back in the first century. And the word that we often hear today is the word post-Christian. We're living in a post-Christian world or a post-Christian culture. And there are many, many, many Australians, and I would say by far the majority of Australians these days, who, uh, who have no real knowledge of God. And they've never heard a clear presentation of the gospel. And no one's ever really taken the trouble to read sincerely and with real conviction tell them about this God who created them. This God who loves them, the God who sang them, loves them because he sent Jesus into the world. And in the meantime, what are they doing? Well, they're worshipping the idols of their culture. Material things such as their homes and cars, and, but also careers. Um, they're, they're worshipping you know, status and power, they're worshipping food, sex, alcohol, drugs. Now, these, these are kind of the, the idols of the world that we live in today, and these are the things that people think are going to satisfy. And so they're chasing after those sorts of things. They're securing, by and large, which means, you know, they're going to seek after those sorts of things to satisfy the cravings of their souls. I mean, there are even people today who worship in the Sabbath. Now, this sounds misunderstanding, I suppose, you know, but I mean, you look on Facebook and see a number of selfies and things like that, you know, and you try and ask yourself after a while, you know, do they really need to know this? And why is there so much focus? Because every church we can make an idol of ourselves, you know. Yeah, but in the end, these things that people are seeking after to fulfill their lives and to satisfy them these days are going to bitterly disappoint them. The day is coming when that, 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 that God-shaped vacuum that is in every human heart is going to still be there. And all the things that keep us sucking in the time to complete themselves is, is, is going to let them down. They're false gods. They're idols. That's all. Deep down, there are people who who have tried all of these other alternatives and have come to the conclusion that there's, there's got to be something more. There's something terribly missing. I think we uh, came to a doctor and he said, um, you have made up for yourself, O God, and our souls are restless until they find a rest in you. And that's the way that it is. If all these people didn't get up to looking for the unknown God, they're looking for the unknown God. And uh, he's the only one who, who can fill that void in our lives. He's the only one who can satisfy that ache which is in every human heart. And, you know, I just think to myself, there might be somebody here this morning who's got that ache in their heart. Why do say this morning? Take so much prayer, you just seem to be telling me, telling me stories of this God that I cannot solve. But maybe that's not what he's going to experience. And that God is desperately wanting to show himself, to withdraw into himself. He's offering you the gift of grace, grace that's a free gift. It's not earned, but he's offering it to you this morning. And only that God will reveal himself to us. Only that God can satisfy us. And if you're looking this morning for something to fill that vacuum in your heart, can I urge you to turn to God? Seek the forgiveness of sin and guilt that He offers as you turn to Jesus. As you look to Him and see what He has done for you by dying on that cross on the cross, turn to Him.
Thanks for joining us for this presentation from North Pine Baptist Church. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au.